All right, let's turn to Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. If you haven't been with us so far, you're just right at the beginning. I know we're in chapter 2, but we'll review over what we've already covered. I really have a desire that we grasp these things. These are very deep waters. This is the hardest sentence we've come to so far in the book of Hebrews. In a book of hard sentences, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 is a hard section. So it's the heart of the hard. Okay? It's complicated. It is. I say that from the very beginning. But I hope to make it simplified, not to erase uh, certain things that we have to talk through to understand it better, but rather to bring clarity around the central point. Because there's many issues that we could get distracted with that are very important but are not the most important. I hope we can stay honed in on the most important here uh, as we walk through it. On October the 14th, 2012, Felix Baumgartner stepped out onto a platform connected to a space module that was elevated 124,000 feet above the surface of the earth. He stepped out onto this platform 24 miles above our planet. He had trained for years and he was going to make one attempt at a world record. You see, in the 60s, a man fell, free fell, from 102,000 feet. And Baumgartner's goal was to fall from 124,000 feet. Yes, like parachute, jump. I watched a video this week as I studied this passage. This event came to my mind, uh, dealing with our text, believe it or not. That's how my mind works. So I quickly YouTubed Felix Baumgartner, October 14, 2012, and yes, there's a video. And the first video scene of the video is a camera stationed on the module above his head as he's standing on a platform, a little bitty platform. He's sitting, and then he steps off onto it like the high dive, kids. 124,000 feet up. And he's looking down. You can see his helmet looking down. And he gives a salute to let the people in the command center in New Mexico know, I'm ready to go. The view was breathtaking. From that height, as he stood there, he looked down and he saw no buildings, no cars, no clearly defined national boundaries. You most certainly could not see humans as he was perched high above the earth. And yet, at that moment, there were over 7 billion individuals on the planet going about their daily life. He could see none of them. He could just see the immensity, the enormity of one speck of dirt in the expanse of the universe. Just looking at one speck of dirt in the universe, he could not see mankind. Imagine if he could back up into God's realm and look at the universe. How small would man be? Because in comparison to the size of the earth, man is minuscule, small, 
And there's something about being perched that high, I guess, that gives you that feeling. Even though I wasn't there, thank God. And I have no intentions of breaking his record at 124,001 feet. Okay? I'm glad we have the video of it. David gives us the view of a lifelong shepherd who spent countless nights under the, the canopy of stars which expand over this speck of dirt. And he told us about his experience in Psalm 8. Listen to his words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. Do you get the contrast of those words? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. What amazing contrast for a simple shepherd to put on the pages of our Bibles. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, it doesn't really matter if you're David standing in a pasture or you're Felix Baumgartner standing 124,000 feet above the earth looking out over the immensity of creation, it causes everybody to say, what is man? That you're mindful of us. In an age of self-help and self-esteem, our text this morning ascribes to mankind the greatness and the destiny which only God could give to him. In a world awash with worry over little people and their thoughts about themselves and their thoughts about each other, we're going to elevate above that from our text and see God's thoughts about man and God's solution to the destiny of mankind. We see that in the sermon today, in the sermon that we've been studying, the great sermon of the letter to the Hebrews, because that's what it is, it's a sermon preached originally to two or four, a group of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews somewhere in the Roman Empire. I believe they were in Rome. And their pastor is separated from them and he's writing to them to tell them to hold on to their faith in the face of persecution. Now I want to review for you for just a moment. In chapter 1, our preacher extols the majesty of the eternal Son of God. This is high Christology. It is a picture of Christ elevated above all things, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. It's His divinity put on display. In chapter 1, in verses 1-4, through four, we see that God spoke in many ways, right? To the prophets and through the prophets. And He spoke in many fashions of ways through dreams and visions and personal words and, and the prophets themselves. God spoke. But in this day, He spoke to us by Son. The elevated revelation comes from Jesus. As great as the old revelation was, the new revelation is greater. That's the first four verses. And 
He is exalted and given the name above angels. Why? Because He has done something angels could never do. He is now ruling over all things. We see this string of quotes in chapter 1, verses 5 through 13 that come mainly from the Psalms, and they deal with Christ as King. Again, His divinity. He is the divine Son of David, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, worthy of all worship and praise and honor. And it ends, the cap of those, those quotes is in verse 13. And to which of the angels, he's asking a question, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He asks a question, right? But he doesn't give an answer directly. He jumps to verse 14 and says, Are they, speaking about the angels, not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He closes chapter 1 with this great question. To which of the angels, or to what angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And he doesn't answer the question. He is a great preacher. This happens all the time in preaching, doesn't it? you got the preacher driving a straight line, and then all of a sudden he darts over here to answer something or to pick up a subject. Now, it's not scatterbrained. It's intentional. What I came to realize as I studied this passage that we're dealing with today, I back up and look at it and I say, this is amazing. What God has done through this preacher is put the divinity of Jesus on full display in chapter 1. And he's asked a very pertinent question. How or to who has God said, sit at my right hand? In other words, to whom has God said, you deserve to rule and reign and have authority? That's the end of chapter 1. is the divinity of Christ ruling and reigning. And then, G- and then him saying, God didn't say to angels, sit at my right hand. Who did he say it to? But then, chapter 2 Verses 5 through 18 are going to extol the Christ-centered humanity of Jesus. We're going to come into touch with Jesus' humanity. The fact that He's not only divine fully, but He is man fully. And right in the middle, to get our attention, to bring emphasis, you want to say, what is the point? What is he driving at in these first two chapters? It's verses one through four. The exhortation. Chapter one is pure exposition. Chapter two, five through eighteen, pure exposition. Right smack dab in the middle, in between that bracket of exposition is an exhortation. Let us pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard so that we do not drift away. He is saying, pay attention to the author and the founder of your faith. If you don't pay attention to the gospel, the author, the founder, the completer of your faith, you will drift. And if God did not spare those who drifted away from the old covenant that was mediated to us or to our fathers by the angels, how can you expect to escape if you deny such a great salvation? What he's doing is bringing our attention to the exhortation by saying, Jesus is fully divine, chapter 1. And Jesus is fully man, chapter 2. And right in the middle, don't take your eyes off of Him 
or you will drift. It's not an if, you might, it could happen. It's a definite promise if you lose sight of who Jesus is. If you compromise on who the Son of God and Son of David is, you will lose sight and you will fall away into destruction. And I shook some of you, I think, to the very core when I said, He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to Christians in chapter 1-4. through Now, let me explain that term. As I think it was true in their day, it's true in our day. Christian, in the most generic sense, is one who follows Christ. Or in the most specific sense, is one who follows Christ. But the label is given to those inside the church. Right? I mean, many of the visible church in our day, that come and assemble at places like Grace Fellowship all over the world, call themselves Christians. Others call them Christians. Because externally, that's what we see. They come, to, they come to church, they associate with good Christian people, they act and behave in certain ways that make us believe these people are genuine. But the preacher is focused on not saying, he doesn't just overtly come out and say, some of you aren't saved. He doesn't just hit you with the mallet. He surgically dissects the congregation to say, listen, you want to know how you are a Christian? If you pay attention to the gospel. If you don't, you will drift away. And if you drift away, as John said, they went out from us, for they were not of us. What the author here of Hebrews is doing, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is there are those gathered in this church right now, in the visible church, that pretend. They put on the happy face. They look externally like Christians, but internally they have compromised the truth of the gospel. And they are living by the power of something else. And he says, if you do that, you will drift. And that's the exhortation. And so it's right for us to take it just like that. Not to, not to dismiss it, as I said last week, and say, oh, well, I'm already a Christian. I know I can't lose my salvation, so I'm okay. No, you must persevere until the end. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. And if you don't persevere to the end, then it doesn't say you lost your salvation. It means you were not saved. Ever. And so we have this exhortation in the middle so that we might see it and we might focus on it. We might be consumed with the person of Jesus because what He's calling us to pay attention to is who is this great salvation? Who is it? It's Jesus, the divine and the human. It's Him in all of His glory. And so we have the text that begins for us in verse 5 of our text and moves down through verse 18. And don't worry, we're not going to try to cover all of that. As a matter of fact, Steve, I'll tell you right now, we may or may not get to verse 9 today, okay? Or we may or may not get finished with the sermon today. But I, I want to go slowly through this, hopefully to bring good clarity to this, this passage. Verse 5 says, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you can't care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for 
a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first time he uses the proper name of Jesus. He's going to use it 13 more times in this sermon. This is the first one. Why? Because he's drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the perfect God-man. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So let's dive in here. This morning I want us to see two main points from this text. Two main points. First of all, God's design for mankind from the beginning was that he rule over creation. God's design for mankind was that he rule over creation. The second main point is God's design is realized in Jesus. God's design is realized in Jesus. Now it's helpful that we keep in mind the theme of the entire book of Hebrews as we go through these little bites and little sections or we'll lose and go off track. So remember, the summation of the entire letter is simple. God's final revelation in His Son is supreme to all past revelation. And this revelation is an anchor for our soul during the day of persecution that causes our faith to persevere. God's last word in His Son is over and above all other words which He spoke through the prophets beforehand. And and His purpose in this word through His Son is to secure your soul in the day of persecution and suffering and struggle so that you persevere. He wants you to persevere. He anchors you on the rock that you might persevere to the end. It's helpful to keep that in mind as we go through this. And it's helpful for us to think also about the little paragraphs which we're looking at today, this small technical paragraph. And it's good to even summarize them. So I've given you the two main points with the summary statement. The sermon in an essence, if, you were, if I'm taking notes, I write this one down and I've got it, okay? And I can take it home with me. The summation of verses 5 through 9 is the glory and honor of man that was lost because of sin, has been regained through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The glory and honor that mankind lost in the fall into sin has already been regained through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of humanity is in a desperate search for glory. Now I know you feigning humble ones among us would say, oh no, I care, could care less about glory. I don't want any recognition or honor. But in your heart, you probably more than any of us lust after recognition. You've been around that, right? The guy that walks up and he all shucks you. Ah, I just did awful today. What's he wanting you to say? Oh no, you did great. We've all been there. And, and we, we judge those people who are more overt than that. People who will tell us they're the greatest. We, they're bothersome to us. And these all shucksers are bothersome to us. Because after a while we realize they don't really mean they didn't do good. They want me to tell them how good they did. But the reality is we all are looking for glory. God made us this way. We all want to be recognized, to be honorable, to be glorified. God wrote it on our heart. He made us for it. And so our text is going to say, you lost it, 
and you can have it again. And you can have it through Jesus Christ. So let's look at the sermon here. First, we see that God's design for mankind from the beginning was to rule over creation. In verses 5 through 8b, or really verse 6, beginning in verse 6, we see this. David teaches in Psalm 8 that Adam was given glory and honor and dominion in the original created order. Take your Bible and turn back to Psalm 8 because this is the quote, Psalm 8. I know it's introduced rather strangely, right, in our text in Hebrews. For someone has said somewhere. But this is not that he's become absent-minded in his inspiration and doesn't remember where it was said. He's actually drawing emphasis to the fact that God said it. In other words, he's not interested in the fact that David said it. David's just somebody. God is what matters. And he's not even interested in their ability to memorize Scripture. Oh, I know which one he's talking about. That's Psalm 8. He says, somewhere. He knows right where it is, right? And he pulls out a verse from this magnificent text, which I read earlier, or at least read part of. And it was written originally in this context in Psalm 8 with no way to see it other than he's talking about Adam. If you look at the text, he looks at the heavens and he looks at how majestic God's name is in all of the creation. And then when he sees these things, it causes him to ask the question in verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This little lower than is a reference to the position of mankind. At the original creation, man, before he sinned, was not quite as powerful as angels. The angels are always seen to be spiritually more powerful, right? I mean, we get the warnings in the Bible, in a sense, a warning saying, don't mess with them, right? I mean, Daniel, in, in the book of Daniel, doesn't speak up and command spirits to do things or, or angels to do things. He recognizes that they rule over Persia and other nations and over Israel, but he doesn't dare command them around like some foolish people in our world think they do. That's only safe and reserved for our age where we think we can command demons and command spirits and command angels. That's silliness in the Bible. We were created without the exact power that they have. They're much more powerful than we are. But in our original being, before sin, we were just a little lower than them. We were given a realm of rule and dominion. If we look at the text, it says, You've crowned him with glory and honor and given him, speaking of mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This is a recounting of David of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where God places everything in subjection under Adam. How do we see that? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, what does God tell Adam? I will make for you a helper. And so he begins to fashion animals and bring them before him. And what did Adam do? He named them. What's significant about that, Carlton? When you name it, it's yours, right? I bought my children a dog. How did they know it's their dog? They named her. Her name's Lucy. You wouldn't have named her that maybe, but they named her that, and it's, her, it's their dog. Right? All of the responsibility of that dog ultimately falls on them. I remind them of it all the time. 
Noah, what do I say? Son, you're sitting at my table eating food. Have you fed your dog yet? No, sir. Well, you need to get up and go feed the dog. Frustratedly, he gets up and goes to feed the dog. Why? Because he has dominion over that dog. That's his dog. If he doesn't feed that dog, that dog will go hungry. Adam was originally this way with all of creation. He named it. He tended to it. He protected it. He ruled over it. This is a high and lofty position that Adam's given. And David is extolling the uniqueness of mankind. Listen, we've got it all wrong, I think, in our theology now in some ways. We talk about the worth and value of mankind based on the redemption we receive in Jesus. And we miss it. The value that we have is that we were created in the image of God. That's where our value comes from. Redemption doesn't show us our value. The cross doesn't tell us how valuable we are. The cross tells us how sinful and grotesque we are. And how magnificently great our Jesus is. You don't look to the cross and say, boy, mankind's awesome. Think of that. We don't say that. We look at it and fall to our face and say, our God is gracious. Our God is merciful. Where does value for mankind come? In the creation. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. That's where our value comes from. We're made in the image of God. And so our text points us that way. Mankind was intended to rule. Mankind was intended to have dominion. The original purpose of mankind was subverted though. It was changed. It was brought down. Why? Because of the fall into sin. And he recognizes that in verse 8, part B. Now in putting everything in subjection under, over him, under him, he did not leave anything outside of his control. The C part of that text is so clear. At present, we do not see everything subjected to him. What is he talking about? The fall of mankind. In Adam, we all sinned. We learn that, don't we, children? You learn that in the catechism in Sunday school or in church time. Who was our first father? Adam. And what did he do? He sinned. And how did that affect us? We all became guilty and sinful in him. We fell from our lofty estate in the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that our sin cost us everything. It cost us our relationship directly with God. It cost us the ability to live forever. We began to die physically. It cost creation everything. It caused creation, it caused creation to be brought under the subjection of our sin. Creation is what it is. Because of our sin, George Whitfield famously said, when a dog barks at you, he simply recognizes your failure. He's angry because you failed. He doesn't want to be the way he is. He's forced to be that way because you sin. In Adam, we fail. And in Adam's fall, we all sin. And our sin has subjected this entire creation to fallenness, to decay, to destruction to failure, to breaking down. And that's what we currently see is that we have lost our lofty position through sin. Is there hope? 
That's what I find myself asking at the end is, is there hope? Oh, please tell me there's hope for mankind. And that's really what I want to talk about in the second point. God's original intentions, His design was fulfilled in Jesus. Now let's look at verses 5 through 9 from that aspect. We've looked at it from the aspect of Adam. Adam had this lofty position in which he had dominion over all of creation. And what happened? He sinned. And when he sinned, he lost his rulership and everything suffers because of Adam. We suffer, the creation suffers. Is there any hope for mankind? Yes. What is it? God's original design is now fulfilled in Jesus. Our writer doesn't look at the Adamic application. He doesn't look at it and say, this was originally about Adam, and this is what happened to Adam. He sinned, and when he sinned, he fell, and then all the world got messed up in sin. He doesn't do that. Our pastor takes it and makes it directly applicable to Jesus. Let's look together. God didn't subject the world to come to angels. Now let's look at verse 5. Now it was not to angels. It's not that it was subjected to somebody. It just wasn't subjected to angels. That's the first thing we see. In this verse, in the first word now or for, it can be translated for also in English. What is it really? That's a connecting that makes us look back up in the passage. So does it connect to verse 4? Chapter 2, verse 4? No, it doesn't. Well, what's he connecting to? He's connecting to verse 14 and above in chapter 1. He's saying, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Chapter 2, verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Do you see how that works? That's the question answered for us. We don't know yet, according to this, who the world to come was subjected to. We just know who it wasn't subjected to. It's not subjected to angels. So here in verse 5, he picks up chapter 1 and says, don't worship angels, worship Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. He gives all these reasons why. And then he gives his last reason in verse 5. He says, because they don't rule the world to come. Jesus, he's going to tell us, Jesus, I just said it, but he's better at suspense than, my, than I am. He says, angels do not rule the world to come. God hasn't subjected it to them. The word, the word translated in verse 5, world, is an interesting word. I've said uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, that this word is identical. Verse 6 of chapter 1 and verse 5 use the same word to, you, to talk about the word world. Most commonly in the Bible, the word cosmos is in, it's translated world. When you see the word world, it's easy to just say, well, that must be cosmos. But that's not the word that our writer uses. Our preacher uses a different word altogether, oikomene, which is meant to speak always of this world, a world inhabited by God or by man. So we have to wrestle a little, and many have. Some would say that the, what the subject that he's discussing here, and many, many people would say it's talking about a future only. In the future, the world will be subjected to Jesus. And that will be uh, played out in a millennial kingdom. 
that this earth will be under the rulership of Jesus in the millennial kingdom as He rules and reigns with His people, the saints, over all things. Many people translate and uh, take this and, and interpret it that way. There's merit to that. And, um, and it's, it's almost convincing to me. But there's some things that keep me from buying that particular interpretation. Though I respect those who hold that interpretation. I suppose many of you in here hold that interpretation. As we look at the text, we have to wrestle with a couple of things. And I want us to do it together and then we'll be moving to the close. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected. You see that? The subjection has already occurred. God has subjected the world to come to somebody. Not to angels, but to somebody. And it's the world in which we have been speaking, he says. Of which we've been speaking. Well, what world has he been speaking of? In chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, the world he speaks of is the world in which Christ rules and reigns presently, having ascended back into the heavens and seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, that phrase makes me pause and say, is he really talking about something into the future? Because the prophets often spoke about things in a present or a finished, completed sense, though they were going to happen in the future. The prophets did that. If that was all there was, I would, I would admit I'm inclined at that point to say, he must be talking about some world to come that isn't here yet. But he says it's the world in which we've been speaking of. And the world that he speaks of in verse 5 through 13 is the world in which Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. You see that? Now, my mind is spinning. What in the world do we have before us? Are you telling me that this world is already subject to Jesus? That's not what we see. Again, another clue that I think this is what he's talking about is 8, verse 8. After the quotation of Psalm 8, look what he says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. He anticipates an objection, doesn't he? At this time, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see with our physical eyes subjection to Jesus. We see death. We see suffering. We see persecution. We see smallness. We see the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It's just small. It's, it's like yeast in a loaf. It's just, what's, what's significant about it? The church is this minuscule thing in this age. He anticipates that his reader will say, come on now. You're telling me this is as good as it gets? His answer is, no, no. We don't, we don't see it with our physical eyes yet. What do we see? We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. If you want to see the world to come, you look at Jesus. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Verse 9 tells us why. Because He was willingly subjected to suffering and death. And he was, he was received by God because of his suffering. Acceptable. The stamp he received was a crown of glory as he ascended back into the heavens. Chapter 1 verse 6 says, And it was of this world that God told the angels, Praise 
Him or give Him praise or worship Him. It was when Jesus died and was raised and then ascended to the right hand of God that the world to come began to be subjected to Him. The world of which He speaks of is a very strange world indeed, one that the Old Testament saints did not anticipate. They anticipated the world in which they lived, Jesus or the Messiah comes and then the kingdom. That's why they constantly ask Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Hey, what about now? Can we rule with you, Jesus? Jesus keeps deferring and keeps pushing them away. They've missed missed a section of history, and that section is the section we live in today. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world that was to come, of which we are speaking. It's this world... And that world. This is what I mean by that. In in Adam we lost everything. In Christ we get all things. Look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while. You notice that? In our original in in the Psalm 8. It says you made him a little lower. Here he takes the Septuagint reading. For a little while you made him lower than the angels. Now that's a reference to Jesus. It's a Christ-centered passage at this point. The writer of Hebrews passes over the application to Adam and he applies it to Jesus. Or better said, he sees it applied to Adam. He sees Adam's fall. He asks the question, where is hope for mankind? And he finds it in Jesus, the second Adam. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels and then he was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Our passage said he was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. You see that? That's how he received his crown of glory and honor. Because he was willing to come as a servant, humble himself, even to the point of death on a cross. There God crowned him with glory and honor, made him king of kings and lord of lords, so that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. It's Jesus who we have before us in Psalm 8. The fulfillment of Psalm 8. What was lost in Adam was gained in Jesus. Paul calls him this in Romans 5. Paul says that in Adam all men sinned and therefore all died. And in Jesus, those who are in Jesus have been saved. He compares Adam to Jesus and says Adam and Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 he does the same thing. The first Adam is a man of the earth and the second Adam is a man from heaven. And we received the seal of the man from heaven. We're in the second Adam. If you're in faith in Jesus Christ, you find your value in your created being in the image of God redeemed in Christ. Now, we see the fullness of the picture. Jesus has completed the final destiny which God set forth for mankind. And because of that, He has brought many sons to glory. We're going to see later in the text. Our experience in the current state is filled with the already and not yet of the Bible. If you're not comfortable with this, you're not going to be comfortable with the book of Hebrews. You see, we live in an age of overlap. When Jesus died and was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven, the Bible says He poured out then the blessings of eternity on us in the Spirit. What we see happening is eternity has come back into our day. How has it come back in our day? 
Well, because we now receive some of the blessings of eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says we are now new, what? Creation. When will we be a new creation? In Revelation 21 and 22? Yes, and now. The first fruits of that new creation are our salvation, our regeneration, our new man in Christ. Paul says we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, when I look at you and you look at me, we shouldn't be looking at the fleshliness of each other, but of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's been brought back into our day. Why? Because He's ruling and reigning. You want to have confidence about where your loved ones are that have died in Christ? The only confidence you have is that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. And they are seated with Him in the heavenly places. If not, they're lost. And we're to all men to be most pitied, Paul would say. Oh no, we have confidence because He has been raised. He has ascended. And so there's already blessing in our day. But it's not yet complete. There's still things to come. You see, it's already here in the form that we're regenerate. And we have the new man. And we are in Christ. And we regard one another according to the flesh no longer, but according to the Spirit. The man in Christ. That's how we regard one another. But then we see each other sin. We say, well, this is not how it's supposed to be. You're right. In, in the future, it won't be that way. When he banishes, finally, sin and death after they are finally put under his feet. When? When he comes again. You see, the age of Christ was started when He came. It was inaugurated. And it has been ended, it will end, when He comes again. And everything between then is an age of already, not yet. God promised and He fulfilled it in Christ, but we haven't fully received the promise. We're waiting for the inheritance that we have in Jesus. Oh, we taste it. We're going to learn that in Hebrews 6. We taste the heavenly things, but we haven't fully received them yet. We're waiting on them. They're coming in Jesus. Or Paul in Colossians 3 says it this way. We focus on the one who is in heaven, Christ, where we are. For when he comes, then who we are will be evident or will be seen. You see the already not yet? I'm already in Christ. How does God see me? In Christ. How does God accept me? In Christ. And in the future, I will be in the full image of Jesus. So much so that John says when he looks out over his gathered body, the church, he will see himself as he is. These are high and lofty promises. What we lost in Adam, we gain in Jesus. The last and final man. The better Adam. The one who came and fulfilled what we could not do. We live in the overlap and we need to become comfortable with that. An earthly example would be good, I think, to close. So we have all of this heavy, deep doctrine. And we say, it's so complicated. How could people back in that day understand what he's talking about? We, we always have this pride of place. We think we're smarter than they were. Now look, they got one up on us. You see, they lived in an age of an empire. Namely, the Roman Empire. And the Romans would send out ambassadors. When the Romans, or many of the ancient cultures, when they sought to conquer a people, they sent emissaries. They sent ambassadors. By the way, that's what Paul calls us. In 2 Corinthians 5, you are an ambassador of Christ. Ministers of reconciliation. 
What is our job then, Christian, based on our text today? Christ has gained what Adam lost. What should we be telling people? Your hope is in Jesus. And by the way, He's coming. Oh, come on, man. Death's ruling. People get cancer. Kids are getting run over by cars. People are abusing their kids. People are getting divorced. People are sleeping around indiscriminately at work. Teens are getting hooked on drugs. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. You're telling me Jesus rules and reigns? Yes. That's what I'm telling you because I'm His ambassador and I love you and I want you to know He's coming. And if you do not bow the knee of your heart and life now and find peace with God when He comes, He will submit you to His crown. He will destroy you. The Romans practiced this very technique. They would send messengers from Rome carrying good news, the gospel of the kingdom of Rome. And they would say, our king, Caesar, has this for you. And that king would open it up and he would look and it would say something like, the day's coming when the hordes and the armies like the vultures will gather around your city. Listen to me. You can have peace right now. You can have the Pax Romana. You can live in pleasure. All you have to do is ascribe your service to Caesar. We will go back and tell him, King, they have submitted And rather than an army, he will just come in and he'll set up economic trade. He'll build some roads. He'll take over and he'll be the king. Nobody has to die. But listen to me. If you say no, they will circle your city and they will kill every man, woman, and child. And they'll leave you alive to watch it. Some submitted and some resisted and Rome covered the planet of their day through this way of ruling. Now, it's this terminology that's in the backdrop of these Greek-speaking Roman citizen Jews when our writer says he's already submitted the world to come to Jesus. And we don't see it yet. We just see Jesus. But the grace of God has come So that you might have the blessing, not the curse. That's the end. Verse 9. We're going to cover it again next week. That's the end. The promise of grace through Christ is the end. So you're sitting here and you're hearing this sermon and you're outside of Christ. I want to plead with you as an ambassador that Jesus is coming. He's currently ruling and reigning in heaven with all the saints. And He's activating that rule. His kingdom is coming on the earth through the church. And you may scoff at it at this moment, but let me tell you, there's a day coming when he will split the sky and you will scoff no longer. You will bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and you will give submission to him. But if you wait till that day, he will banish you from his kingdom. And you will go outside of the walls of his city and you will weep and grind your teeth in pain and suffering forevermore. But it does not have to be that way. You see, you can come under His rule right now. How? Place your life into His hands by faith and say, He is the King. I submit. 
I bow. He is Lord. He is ruler. He is the fulfillment of the promise that God has given to mankind to have glory and honor. I accept that based on His Word. The Peter says, then God bring, he, Jesus brings you to God. By the power of the gospel, He brings you to God. So let nobody in here forevermore say, I didn't know how to be a Christian. I didn't know the consequences of not becoming one. You know now. Will you accept His terms of peace? That's all that's left for you. Will you children accept the terms? Will you father? Will you mother accept the terms of peace so that you might be with Him rather than Him be against you when He comes? I'm looking forward to it. When we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and all that is wrong will be made right at the seat of the judgment of Christ. And then we will rule and reign with Him forever.